This is the Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Dan Morrison from Abilene Christian University. Today, we discuss the lives of adolescents and young adults with Dr. Josh Packard, a sociologist who serves as the executive director of the Springtide Research Institute. Dr. Packard is author of three books in the sociology of religion. Packard uses survey data and interview data to understand the concerns that drive young people's participation in religious communities. Religious pluralism, young people, and research outside the university. Our conversation was recorded on April 4th, 2022. Stay with us. Well, welcome to the Annex. Josh, glad to have you with us. I'm so glad to be here, and it's good to see you, Dan. Awesome. Good to see you. Well, folks who are not watching us right now, because this is a podcast, Mm -hmm. uh, may not know that uh, both Josh and I went to graduate school at Vanderbilt University together. Uh, Josh was a few years ahead of me, and I relied on him for quite a bit of wisdom in my first couple years while he was still around. So it's good to be able to talk with you today, Josh. Well, I'm really thrilled to be back in the classroom. I was, I was a professor for a long time, and so I, I know that we're recording this in front of your class, which is super, and I'm, I'm thrilled for that. Yes, in a Annex First, a live classroom audience for the podcast. So that is new, and we're seeing how it goes. So, Josh, you run an independent research center, and you write and speak and apply sociological research methods, and your work especially focuses on the religious and faith lives of 13 to 25-year-olds. Well, tell us how you got started in this. Tell us the story of how you worked to create Springtide Research Institute. Yeah, thanks, Dan. I appreciate that. I'm, I'm glad we got a chance to talk about that. Uh, you know, going back to, as you mentioned, sharing the, some of the same hallways of Vanderbilt, you know, this was not really a thing that you could express very openly in graduate programs at that, at that level. It's not, it's just not what they're looking for in students. And I remember the few times that I talked about wanting to do something uh, very applied having advisors tell me, including my own dissertation advisor, tell me, don't ever say that out loud again. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Because what they want are people who are going to grow up and be researchers and, you know, go to universities, which is great. And I did that. And I liked I liked that, but and the applied sociology bug never left me. And and in fact, I had two faculty appointments. The the second one, I moved because it was an applied sociology department. And I really loved that. It was that always just felt like my work to do. I think sociology has so much to offer the world and often it stays locked up inside of universities and academics talking to each other, which is great and really important. I mean, I'm not, I'm not down on that. I just mean like, I think there's a role to play for other people too, trying to make that stuff work in the real world. So how can we run better organizations? You know, how can we uh, organize more effective social movements? How can we make, in my case, like religious organizations and teachers and parents, you know, able to connect more with the young people that they serve and care about? There's real social dynamics at work in all those things, and, and that sort of laid the foundation. It informed a lot of the research that I was doing as a professor, and uh, going around and doing some speaking, getting a chance to talk about my research, and uh, as things would come out and I would pursue those opportunities, led me to a series of connections with people who wanted to start this whole research institute. And I was really excited to get a chance when they invited me to come on and be the inaugural executive director. As you know, leaving a tenured position is not a small decision. But somebody gave me some really great advice one time. Um, They said, you know, the older you get, when somebody offers you a chance to do something, you know, just sort of wild and a little bit crazy, you should take it. Because as you get older, those come around fewer and fewer. And and I thought, well, here, you know, I was 42. And I was like, okay, if I'm going to do this, like, this is probably the time to do it. Because I'm still young enough that I could, you know, completely screw my entire family up. And I really wanted a lot on the line, you know, when you leave a tenured position. So it was, uh, it felt like that was the right, it felt like it was the right chance to do something new. 
Well, maybe you'll inspire some folks. I mean, I, we have a lot of conversations in the field of sociology about alt-act jobs or think tank mm-hmm. jobs or research jobs. And so to me, your story of leaving that tenure track job and, um, or tenure job and striking out in a new direction, maybe that'll help encourage some people to think about those options. Well, I wanted to get into the substance of some of the things that you and your group do uh, because we hear a lot about the decline of religious adherence among young people, mm-hmm. you know, the so-called nuns. So what has your research discovered about people who leave organized religious groups, people who leave and why and what are they looking for, or what, are, what do they not find and so forth? Well, I think a lot of times we look at that one data point of the sort of decline of, of these these sort of big metrics, the big three metrics, I call them around giving, attendance, and affiliation. So people are not giving as much as they used to uh, when they show up. They're not showing up as often as they once did. And when we ask them on surveys, are you Christian Catholic, Christian Protestant, Muslim, Jewish, Buddhist, Hindu, blah, 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 all the way down the line, they indicate that they don't want to check one of those boxes uh, more often than, than they've ever done. And that is absolutely true. Nancy Ammerman, a sociologist, wrote this really great book called Sacred Stories and Spiritual Tribes, though. And she said, she wrote, in a time of significant change, if we see less religion happening in the predictable places, we shouldn't assume that less religion is happening. And I think those, those big three markers really represent the, the sort of predictable places. And yet we're living through a time of profound change in a lot of ways. And we can talk about what those are sociologically. But nevertheless, when we start looking in unpredictable places for religious behavior, what we see is a much different story. We, we see one that's a lot more complex. The people who are willing to check the box to say that they belong to one of those groups are not nearly as uniform as you might think. And the ones who are claiming no religious affiliation are not necessarily uninterested in the conversation about faith and religion and God and spirituality. They're not connected to those institutions that have primarily delivered those kinds of things, but that doesn't mean they don't care about the conversation or that they don't themselves identify as religious or spiritual. I think you're going to make a lot of people on this campus somewhat happy about that, (laughs) what you just said, because that might lead some people to think that there's a group of folks who have left a traditional faith community, but might be attracted to a different kind of faith community in the future. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what does your research find about why it is that young people are, young people especially, are disconnecting from those traditional religious communities? Well, I think that, you know, this question about why young people are leaving is not really the right question to ask. I mean, it's, it's a, so I was giving a presentation a few weeks ago and this pastor was like, so why are all the, he said the kids, he's like, why are all the kids leaving church? And I was like, well, that's a really great question to ask in say 2002. It's not really the right question to ask in 2022. And because largely what we've got now is a generation of young people who are growing up without much formal connection to religious institutions in the first place. In some ways that's, I mean, it comes with its own unique challenges and opportunities, right? And so I was trying to explain to this guy, I was like, they don't hate you, they nothing you. Like, you know what I mean? Like they just, they literally don't have a framework for even understanding it. And in some ways that's really good because you didn't get so bitter that you left, but also it means that like the sort of basic grammar of faith, uh, whether that's a Christian faith or a non-Christian faith, is just not something that is a default for them. I mean, I'll I'll give you uh, an example, Dan. Uh, Every time I taught the sociology of religion, we would try and go on field trips. So I would take them, if I could, we would go to a mosque and a synagogue and a 
Christian church and a Catholic church if we could get into all four. And I was never surprised. It's all the way going back to Vanderbilt, actually. It, it was never a surprise to me when a student hadn't been inside of a mosque or a synagogue. Just statistically speaking, that was not terribly surprising. But the last time I taught this class, uh, just a few years ago, over half of my students had never been inside of any house of worship. And so for them... And I was giving a presentation just yesterday morning, actually, at a local congregation where I live. Um, I don't do a whole lot of congregational presentations, but this is down the street. And I was like, sure, I'll come and do this. And I was trying to explain to them that like, young people are often now just as unsure and timid about what is on the other side of the door of your local synagogue as they are about your local Baptist church or your Lutheran congregation. And, and that's a new place to be. And we don't have very effective, and I say we, I mean religious people broadly, do not have very effective mechanisms for dealing with that. And I would say Christians are probably actually further behind the eight ball because for so long they could sort of rely on a cultural knowledge of Christianity, you know, and assume that at least most people understood what pews were, for example. They understood what an altar was, and they at least conceptually had some experience with things like communion and other Christian rituals. And now everything on the other side of that door is scary and new and unknown and Christians haven't developed those muscles over time to help make those transitions easier in the ways that maybe some other groups have had to just by default and survival. I mean, in some of your reports, you describe how young people think about religious communities and how often they believe that their interests and their values don't align with the values and principles or belief statements of those religious groups. Among which beliefs is that most true? Well, I think this is where we get into the real sociology of it. I mean, there's a bunch of places that do research about young people and religion. A lot of them are denominationally specific, like Catholics have their own research group, Baptists, and um, certainly other faith expressions, uh, Jewish groups and Muslim groups have their own. But what we do at Springtide is really try to bring the social sciences into that conversation. And, and that's, I think that's where this work shows up most is in this disconnect. So as we know from basic in-group and out-group theory, when you're dealing with somebody that you don't have experience with, as we as we've just gone over you tend to paint broadly with the brush, right? I mean, this is where all stereotypes come from. Is, is this a, you tend to be more forgiving and more nuanced about the people in your in-group. You're much more categorical about people in the out-group. If you experience somebody in your out-group who's, who's lazy, then you stereotype, like all of them are lazy. If they're evil or bad, then they're all bad, right? If somebody in your in-group screws up, they're not, they're not lazy or bad. They just had a bad day. They made a bad choice. And when young people don't have these experiences with institutional organizational religion, well, what they do then is they naturally, because of the, they're not trying to do this, this is just what happens in basic social dynamics, is that religious people are in their out group. And so when they see these headlines, which are often not great, or when they hear about some poor behavior, then they think, well, that's how religious people are. As much as adults are often telling themselves stories, incorrect, by the way, about young people, <laughs> young people are often also telling themselves stories about adults also often incorrect. And many of these center around sort of social values. I mean, so one of the things we know about Gen Z is that a primary value for them is diversity. Uh, not just diversity in the sense of like, I need to make sure that I feel comfortable in this place, but that in an abstract sense, regardless of whether it's for me or for others in general, I'm not really going to belong or feel welcome in some place that doesn't go out of its way to make other people feel welcome there. Our own research bears that out. Other people's does too. When you start combining all those things, then they start, you know, like, here's a whole bunch of people that you don't have experience with, and you see them potentially being exclusionary to other groups of people. Well, the, then this thing, this gap emerges. And we asked young people last year, you know, what do you care about? How much, you know, how much do you care about the following things? We asked them stuff like, you know, LGBTQIA plus rights, uh, immigration reform, gender equity, and the environment, gun reform, like on and on down the list. 
And then we said, okay, how much do you think religious people care about these things? And there's like a 20 point gap on each one of those. In every case, they think religious leaders care less about those things than they do. So in part, we're like highlighting a sociological thing that's going on is very clear evidence of what's happening in this sort of like in-group, out-group dynamic, because of course it's not true. Like objectively true. There are lots and lots of religious people. Most mainstream denominations care tremendously about those kinds of issues, not to mention really progressive and left-leaning religious organizations that care about them. Of course, they don't necessarily make the most noise because those aren't really headline worthy. And so then you find the thing that drives the narrative is aberrant behavior. But nevertheless, that becomes the story that people tell themselves like, oh, well, why would I want to be a part of a group that doesn't care about these things that, that I find as like primary values? And so this is when we do interviews with young people, I say this over and over and over again. Like when we talk to young people, say, who had no religious affiliation or experience and we ask them if they would ever consider it and they'll be like, oh, I could, I'm spiritual maybe, or I like believe in there's, there's a divine presence in the world, but I could never be a part of organized religion because, you know, they'll say things like categorically, like they all hate gays. It's like, whoa, that's a big statement. (laughs) And it sort of takes me back to that W.I. Thomas classic statement of like that, which people believe is true is true in its consequences, right? Like, is that factually true? Like, no, there are lots of open and affirming denominations, but there's enough of them that it makes the perception, the ramifications of that perception are very true in practice of like, I'm not even going to bother exploring it because uh, this is what I see all the time. And so it's true in its consequences for sure. Makes me think those groups need to do a lot more PR. (laughs) <laughs> I, I I think that's part of it. Unfortunately, you know, a lot of the PR that happens in the religion world is like, it's religion. I mean, what passes for religion news, I mean, there's some very legitimate sources, but there's no escaping the actual scandals. I mean, if <laughs> my Twitter feed alone can confirm that it's like weekly at this point, you know, I mean, what was it? If, you, if you're really curious about, I mean, the last week was Hillsong. And the week before that, it was, uh, I'm sorry, last week was Christianity Today. And then the week before that, it was Hillsong. And before that, it was something else. And it's, it is like ongoing and, and very hard to escape. I mean, you're right. Like they need better messaging around this. But I think more than better messaging, they need better presence. They yeah. just, these legacy institutions, not unlike higher ed, sort of rely on this model where it's like, oh, we'll do enough to get people to come to us. But the minute that that's disrupted, like it was in higher ed with COVID, you know, universities just had no idea what to do or how to respond. I mean, it was like, can we just get through it essentially? And churches are in the same way. Legacy churches, it's when they have, they are now very slowly coming to realize that young people are probably not going to make the first move to walk across the threshold of their door. And so it it is now becoming incumbent upon them to show up in the same spaces as young people to make sure that that message gets out there. And the question I get all the time this is mind boggling to me, but from actual youth directors, campus ministers, they ask me, where are all the young people? And I'm like, if you don't know, (laughs) like we're in real trouble like that, that probably speaks to some part of the struggle that you're having is like, if if you can't answer that question, then, then I think that speaks fundamentally to the models that we have built. And and, and I don't think these models were bad. They worked in a particular era where we had high institutional trust. It made a lot of sense. You get people to come to you because that's where the trust, that's where the center of trust is. But now that trust is dispersed and certainly not institutionalized, it's a much different story. And, and you know, those models just aren't as effective as they used to be. Well, I'm glad you mentioned trust because I'm looking at your research reports and one of them found that over 50% of young people, this 13 to 25 age group, who are affiliated with a religious tradition (laughs) are underwater on trust in that religious institution. They they have less than 50% trust 
in their own religious community. This is like a really shocking. I mean, to me, it's a really shocking finding, right? That I, I agree. You you can be you can be a member of this group and have so little trust in it in it overall. Okay, what's going on there, Packard? So we don't we don't fully know the story. I mean, it's it's possible, I guess, that there's a bunch of people who are identifying as checking one of those boxes and saying like, oh yeah, I trust my people, but I don't trust any of those other people. I guess that's you know one. If we're being really good researchers and being skeptical, I suppose that's one potential explanation out there. But I think more than anything, what's going on is this sort of like a recognition that even the things that I'm going to identify with, I can't place my entire trust in. And I think. I don't know about your students, the ones sitting in the classroom today even, but I know my students would like, they were at the University of Northern Colorado, but I, our alumni office would have the hardest time like drumming up school spirit, you know? And you'd ask the students like, why did you come here? And they're like, well, I mean, I like it. And then, you know, class, they would list all these reasons. They're like, do you want to support the university after you leave? And they're like, no, like, I don't need a ring or, you know, like I don't need to, to wear some like badge of honor that I went to. And I think it, because they see the troubles and the struggles of the university as well. Um, it's a necessary thing that they need to engage with in order to get a degree. And this is the most, you know, this is the right path for a variety of reasons for a variety of people, but it's not like a badge of honor. And I don't think that that's all that strange. You know, how many people engage with large institutions that don't love them? I mean, you know, how many people have Amazon, but wish they didn't have to have Amazon, right? Like they get the packages, but they really worry about it. It's a distinctly different culture from, um, say the one that my grandfather grew up in, where if you ask my grandfather to identify, like if you, if he introduced himself to you, he would, he would probably say, if my grandfather introduced himself, he would probably say his name. And then he would follow up with where he went to church, what high school he grew up in, in Northern Minnesota, because that's where he still lived, where he worked or what social club that he belonged to, which was the Eagles. Um, that was it. But, and he was very proud of all four of those things. And now when you, like, people do not introduce themselves that way. I just, I don't think institutions live in our hearts in the same way that they used to. And that's, I think, a large part of what's going on with people who say, yeah, okay, I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a Protestant Christian, but like, I don't trust Protestant Christians, you know, writ large, because I'm not so sure that I want to go down that path. I've sort of seen how the sausage is made too much. Well, it's like a disenchantment, right? I mean, in, like a barbarian many, process of seeing inside the inside the machine, so to speak, and then saying, "Yeah, I'd rather." And I, wonder, I wonder about because I had, of course, the same thought. I mean, taking <laughs> we read the same stuff, but I wonder how much like your average fifteen, sixteen, seventeen year old is aware of all those things, like, or or is this coming from parents? Like, at some point, there's a project on Springtide's docket where we start to really dig into the source of that. I. I do think one of the things we say at Springtide all the time, and this is what makes us applied, is that we, as a research institute, we don't want to be interesting. We want to be useful. And that question of like, where does all of this come from? It strikes me as a very interesting question. One that I would definitely pursue if I was a faculty member, but I'm not sure like exactly how useful it is until we can satisfy that question internally of like, how would somebody use this information to foster a better relationship with a young person so that young person can flourish more? If Until we can answer that question, we know that that's not the project for us. I mean, to me, this is one thing that comes across really significantly in your reports. And and that's the goal, right, of having young people, whether they are associated with a religious institution or not, actually having the kind of personal and social infrastructure that leads to a successful, flourishing, healthful life. 
and the the research there is overwhelming. I mean, our own position is that in order for a young person to flourish, their religious and faith lives need to be well considered. Now, that looks, if you consider your faith life well and you come to the decision that, you know, there is no God and you don't believe in anything, I think you're better off than than the person who has literally no opinion about it and has never thought about it. And in fact, not only do I think you're better off, we know, at least according to the data, that you're better off. Uh, at least you're likely to be, because of course, everything in the social sciences is percentages, right? Not definitives. And, and in fact, Gallup, who's been doing research about this for years, they just put out this meta-analysis of all their studies earlier this year and same thing like generally speaking religion is good for people and more religion with limits tends to be better (laughs) to use an english major turn of phrase you know there's obviously there's limits to that and there's brackets to it and and the kind of religion matters there but but generally speaking it's a good thing it's people express more satisfaction they express that their life is more worthwhile Young people who are religious and attend tend to find a stronger sense of community and think that the things they do in the world are important. They have a stronger sense of purpose and on and on. I mean, we could, I mean there's mental health effects, physical health effects. I mean, it goes you know pretty deep. And so, yeah, we want, to, we want to try and see a world where every young person has a trusted adult or five would be the magic number that they can turn to to have these kinds of conversations. Well, let's, let's talk about that a little bit. Um, I mean, if young people are less tied to traditional religious groups, you know, what are they doing to create and sustain meaning if they are spiritual but not religious or religious but not tied to a particular faith community? Um, they're watching videos on TikTok about crystals and <laughs> witches. Uh, if you're not familiar with witch talk, you should definitely go down that rabbit hole. It's fan- it's, it's fantastic. Um, but <laughs> they are turning to each other largely. And I think that this is both really great and mildly terrifying. I mean, the... Uh, and, and young people tell us the same thing. They, they say that, you know, about 16% of them tell us that in a time of uncertainty, they turn to religious communities. That's about the same percentage as say that they turn to nobody. And by far the most common source of people that they turn to for guidance is their peers. They also tell us in the interviews that they really don't like having to rely on their peers for those things because their peers are often about as knowledgeable as they are. And, and they know that. And so they don't see that as a, as a perfect system. And so, they, they end up then doing a lot of things alone. They, they go into nature, they do art, there's music, acts of protest gained a lot of steam over the Black Lives Matter movement, especially during the pandemic. People engaging in them, this is not a correlation of like more spiritual people doing these things more. We ask them explicitly, like, how often do you do the following as a religious or spiritual activity? And we saw an uptick in all of those things. But, you know, we're sociologists. I, I, just, I don't think it's possible to sustain long-term coordinated social behavior like religion without institutions. And at some point, you know, institutions either need to figure out how to harness that and get behind it and support it, come alongside young people as they do those things, or they're going to risk the whole endeavor falling apart. I mean, it's just a, I can't think of another example of something that where a collection of individuals, so to speak, that don't have a central organizing force has has managed to maintain itself for a very long time. Now, look, we're moving into, if we want to get really esoteric about this, we're moving into Web 3.0, which is an entire system built around the lack of trust. Uh, so, you know, financial services have already figured this out. There's things like uh, DAOs, which are figuring out governance on the same model. So maybe there's a, a metaverse uh, Web 3.0 version of religion, but it has a, that's non-institutional and sustained, but it hasn't happened yet. That's wild. Uh... <laughs> 
Well, I wonder about the implications of your work for faculty. You mentioned trusted adults being really important. So one of the big lessons of your work is that young people do best when they have trusted adult mentors who listen in order to understand rather than listening to respond and that they need to feel cared for as individuals before they will be able to receive advice or guidance. So how could professors use ideas like these? <laughs> uh, by listening to students, that would be wild, right? No, you're at a place, I think, where uh, that largely sort of is woven in. I mean, I think liberal arts universities are in a much better position to be able to effectively do that. It was a challenge, I'll be honest, at, at the two jobs that I had working at state schools where we just had so many students and, and often so many classes where that was difficult to do. But the evidence was really clear. I mean, so I don't know how you all do advising at, at, at ACU, but the um, advising at my universities was largely, I'm not really even sure why we did it. They had to come to us to get, I mean, I know why I did it. I'm not sure why they had professors do it because they, so they had to come to us to get their PIN number so they could register for classes. We were essentially their gatekeeper from letting them get more education, which never made a whole lot of sense to me. And so students would email me and they would say like, can I have uh, my PIN number? And I would say, no, you have to come in and see me. And then so they would come in and see me and they would say, can I have my pin number? And I'm like, you have to tell me what you want to be when you grow up. And they would like give me some answer, right? The first time they would give me an answer. And, and then they would see me writing it down. And like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm taking notes so I can follow up next time. I'm really curious about this. I want to hear more. And I'm like, whatever, dude, give me, give me my pin number. Let me get out of here and go register for classes. But by the second and third and fourth time that we would meet and we would do this work and I would say, okay, so last time you told me you wanted to do X and, you know, I'd see them in the hallway. It wouldn't always be around advising time. How's that application going for that internship? Um, I would look back at my notes and I would see if they had a critical date coming up. I'd send them an email to say, you know, did you find it? Did you get a decision for that scholarship yet or whatever it was? It was like, it disrupted so many expectations that they had about what I cared about. And I didn't really understand I intuitively had figured out that it was making some difference with them, but I didn't understand it until we were recording a season of our own podcast at Springtide called uh, The Voices of Young People. It's like season two, and this young person tells me, look, you have to realize that our dominant experience of interacting with adults is of being dismissed. So even when you ask me a question, I just think that you're doing it because it's your job or because you have to, not because you actually care. It's not until the second or third time that it, you know, that it starts to sink in that you might actually be interested in me as a person. And I think faculty understanding that they're working often, not always, but often behind that set of expectations is really critical. And I think this is, I don't know, a factor of 10x more true when there's a racial difference or an ethnic difference between the faculty member and the student that you're talking to. White students often are, are just more used to institutions working for them. And so when a faculty member or an administrator asks them a question, you know, they, they just assume that that person's interested in it because why wouldn't you be? Because this has always been the case. People are interested in me. Uh, my experience and, and the data tells us that students of color experience a much different kind of campus climate than white students. And that there's good and important work for faculty to be engaged with to change that. And there's also really important recognition of that dynamic that may or may not be at play with a given student that you're sitting across from that can play in how fervently and earnestly you pursue those conversations. Because there might be some more work that needs to be done with some students than opposed to others. Well, now I'm really curious what the students in this class would say about uh, their experience in, uh, in this university in particular uh, around around this, whether folks feel like they do have at least one or two or three faculty members or staff members that would be trusted listeners to them. Well, 
Um, Josh, this has been really fascinating. Is there anything else that you would want to share with in our audience about your research with Springtide or about the state of um, the religious lives of young people today more generally? Yeah, I mean, I think the, I think the big takeaway for me is that like adults have never been more important in the flourishing and faith lives of young people, where I think, you know, adults maybe at one point were interchangeable. You know, one could come and go and the institution really needed to invest in itself because it was the presence of the institution that mattered most, the stability. Institutions now need to spend all that money investing in individuals because the, their consistent, solid presence in the life of a young person is what makes the difference. And it's going to take some time. I know realistically it's probably going to take time to shift those resources, but the quicker it can be done, the better, because those relationships are, are critical. We, we get that magic number of five, by the way, from lots of child development research and, and life course development. That is like, you know, if young people are connected to five trusted adults, they're dramatically better off in all kinds of pro-social outcomes, as well as avoiding risky behavior like drug use and unwanted pregnancies and all these kinds of things. <clears throat> But like one in three young people has one or fewer trusted adult they feel like they can talk to, including their parents. And so we're just falling woefully short in terms of getting to that magic number of five in many cases. So I love what you're saying here about the social and cultural resources that sustain institutions no longer being there. And so in the absence of that, the high levels of trust and a cultural familiarity with and fluency with the language and practices of of religious groups, you know, there are a bunch of um, consequences to that, um, including these, you know, crystals and witch things and all kinds of all kinds of stuff. But they're going to explore everything. <laughs> so there's exploration, right, which is a component of people's lives as they age and mature, of course. But that at the center is this need for sustained, trusting relationships with people who are a little further down the path, whatever that is. I would love to hear a question from one of the students who are assembled here. So what questions do you have for our resident expert on the lives, uh, the religious lives of, of young people? All right, so Josh, I don't know if you heard that, but the question was, are the high rates of depression and anxiety that we see in this age demographic related to, or maybe even caused by, the kind of disconnection from religious institutions that you document in your work? Um, yeah, I, I, they're not, uh, it would, you know, what it would be like a complicated regression model, but a lack of purpose, a lack of connection to something higher than yourself is a significant component there. And I have a good, um, I don't feel like I'm speculating because we're, we're right about to launch a series on mental health that'll come out. The first guide will be for educators here in about a month that'll come out. And then the state of religion and young people will focus on mental health and then a guide for parents and one for employers coming early next year. And that model that we're trying to build is to use some social science to help organizations create a, a pro-mental health or a mental health-friendly organization as opposed to just responding to crisis. So much of what I saw when I was a professor was just responding to crisis. I mean, even when I felt like I did a good job, it was only after something was presenting itself. We weren't really creating conditions to sort of head that off in the first place. And part of that, as we dug into, well, what would be the components of that model, the things that emerged out of the existing research, one of them was about connections or belonging, another about expectations and tool alignment. So like, do you have the resources that you need in order to meet the expectations in this space? And then the third one was really about purpose. And purpose is often expressed as mission, but really comes down to something bigger than yourself, which you can clearly obviously read for a lot of people as religion. And, you know, we don't do a very good job of that, even maybe 
better off in places at the university like where you're at, but it certainly, you know, beyond like majoring in sociology or, or really any other major on the campuses where I taught, we weren't really digging into students like, why are you here on earth? And, and how does being an accountant or a sociologist or a chemist help you to live out that sense of purpose for your existence? And, and those are consistently shown in the research to have really critical links to anxiety, depression, and a whole host of mental health issues, including suicide and suicidal ideation. Uh, super interesting. Okay. Uh, other question? Yeah, Jake. Yeah, so Jacob is saying we know that Islam is the fastest, worldwide, Islam is the fastest growing religion. Jacob's asking about the flip side. Which religious group is declining the fastest? Oh, globally, that's a really good question. I mean, the size of the population expanding probably means that nobody is shrinking in terms of raw numbers. In the United States, the growing number of nuns in ONES is coming largely at the expense of the declining number of Christians or people identifying as Christian. That's not terribly surprising. It's the largest religious group in the country. So if one group is gaining, it's got to come from somewhere. It's offset a little bit by immigration. A lot of immigrants still identify as as Christian, but so the picture is a little bit complicated that way. But generally speaking, in terms of like cultural dominance, um, especially in the Northern Hemisphere, you know, the United States and North America, rather, it's coming at the decline of Christianity. In terms of, I mean, I say decline, decline in terms of those metrics, in terms of numbers. Right. Okay. Other questions for our guest? Yeah, Sophia. So Sophia is asking about the trends that you're seeing and how associated are those with, you know, what she's calling individualistic values, which I'm assuming would be things like importance of self-fulfillment as opposed to importance of doing things or fulfilling social roles and obligations to like parents or elders or other communities of, of interest. Sophia is asking a really uh, fantastic question. It's a, uh, you know, this is why I think a lot of the sort of mainline Christian Protestant denominations are very confused right now is because places like Methodists and ELCA, Lutherans, Presbyterians, et cetera, will, will say like, why isn't this working? Like we are in basic lockstep with the majority of the American public on a whole host of social issues, including LGBTQ plus rights and uh, gender equality and gun reform. Like they're, they're, you know, I, they're telling themselves a story like we're on the right side of history on all these things. Why aren't you coming into our building? And they have to experience it. Like lately they are getting this like small uptick as some of those millennials start having kids. And, and like th- there's some evidence that like if they're going to come to church, they're going to come to one of those. Although the if part is pretty big there, if they're going to come. But none of that really negates the fact that those denominations have done, I think, a really poor job as they've, as they've pivoted into saying, like, look, we agree with you. Like, that, this is in our theological tradition. This is who we are, is accepting of the same people that you're accepting of. We care about the same things that you care about. They've largely messaged that and expressed it in a way that is very individualistic. That is like we live, you know, we are in accordance with your values, as opposed to trying to maybe couch that inside of some larger communal sense of like we need you to do this work that we all care about. That has not largely been the approach. And in places where we do see that message happening, where people put belonging first, then as opposed to putting believing first, then we are starting to actually see some some movement there. Like this is happening not only in Christian communities, but in Jewish communities too, and others where like they, the places that have cracked that code are experiencing a little bit more success, quote unquote, but it's not, it's not super widespread. I mean, it really, Dan, it gets us back to like the very first study in sociology from Durkheim about religion is it's belonging that precedes believing the group makes the norms and values. And if you 
when we, when you try to put the other first, when you try to put the belief first and say like, you've got to sign on to this statement of beliefs or like, look, we, we line up with you. What you end up getting is often this very brief and shallow commitment that doesn't withstand a lot of challenges. You're at a Christian identifying school. Maybe some of your students have worked in, in summer camps before or are looking forward to doing it this year. I did. I worked at a summer camp. And I know that you can like have these literal mountaintop. We were at a mountain here in Colorado when I worked. You can have these mountaintop experiences. And, and youth directors will tell you these stories of like, I baptized five kids this week. And I'm like, okay, but do you know where they're going to be in two years? Like, are you still in touch with them in two years? Because you're, when you put belief before belonging, the evidence is pretty clear that whether it's a political party, a workplace, religion, what have you, uh, over we've got a hundred and what thirty years of research now about this that shows that it just doesn't hold up very well. And so while those mainline denominations have done a pretty good job of making sure that their beliefs are largely beliefs that the majority of Americans would hold, they haven't done a very good job of digging into the belonging part. So I do think that that individualism gets you know sort of gets in the way of that larger project. Let's talk about what's happening in the world of evangelical-ish uh, mega church things, and I'm talking about Hillsong. And all of the kinds of things that have exploded there, I'm not fully up to speed on everything. So, um, if you if you are Josh, like, would you just tell us, um, you know, just briefly, like, so what is Hillsong, um, and then what has happened to make this thing implode in a really spectacular way over the past, you know, few months? It's been going on, but the last couple of days yeah. and weeks have been especially explosive for that group. Well, I, look, I'm I'm. I'm no Hillsong expert, but I'm happy to be talking about this and not like uh, hashtag Will and Chris or whatever you else you could have asked me about. So Hillsong started large uh, out of Australia. So it's this it's international movement and rose to prominence mostly through their uh, New York City site and being celebrity pastors to other celebrities, including most notably Justin Bieber. These, it's like a recipe for failure just written. I mean, if you, it's unfortunately like you feel like you could see this train wreck coming miles away. And over the last two or three years, the leaders have taken leaves of absence about personal failures, which always means, you know, sex in an evangelical circle. Turns out that's what it was. And then most recently, the, the last founder that was left, if I remember correctly, he was fighting some accusations around sexual harassment charges in the workplace is uh, misconduct, I think is the way we talk about that. And uh, finally stepped down. And it's, you know, Hillsong was really influential because of the way it connected with young people. And in a world where lots of religious expressions are trying really hard to figure it out and failing often, Hillsong felt like magic. And they would, they would pack these places with really good music, well-produced music, and a theology that wasn't particularly compromising, but also it was not this like bombastic reformed theology that characterized, say, like rise and fall of Mars Hill and Mark Driscoll in the early part of the 2000s. It was a little bit softer of an edge than that. Yeah, exactly. Like we could say that less the overall, right? I, I, maybe less Calvinist. <laughs> so yeah, it's been, that's all been like playing out in real time on, mo it feels like mostly on social media. Right. And, and then um, I guess the Atlanta campus pastor is breaking away and, and taking his, his flock somewhere else. This is the uh, church and sex cycle, right? Like it's, uh, you're, you're, this is what you're, this is what you're going to see. Okay. Yeah. It's super interesting. Yeah. Justin Bieber's pastor and um, lots of <laughs> tattoos and 
Um, I mean, there have been all kinds of stories about just how abusive some of those leaders were. I mean, particularly in the East Coast, New York City-based branch. And I, I can't speak to any of the other ones. But the news that has, had come out about just the um, the way that the pastoral like leadership team there was was very harmful to a lot of people outside of the sex, the illicit sex, yep. was was very, of course, problematic. Well, uh, we know that the University of South Carolina women won the uh, NCAA women's uh, basketball tournament, uh, you know, Division Division One, uh, over the Connecticut uh, team, uh, pretty convincingly. Who you got in tonight's uh, national championship basketball game? I think Kansas has looked like the best team all season. They're they're not a very fun pick, but they seem to be they they played the best consistently all year and the best going into this tournament. So my money's on Kansas. All right. Well, as a Missouri graduate, I um, have feelings about <laughs> no, that. No. But, but I'll uh, I'll leave them for the off off mic. You mentioned earlier witch talk. What is that? It's a hashtag. It's. Uh, it, you know, it's spelled exactly as you would think: W I T C H T O K. And oh, witch talk. Okay, yeah, witch talk. And the number of the amount of chatter that goes on there, the amount of interest from young people in witches is fascinating, and sort of the um, in a very non-institutional way. Now, you and I, Dan, share another classmate from Vanderbilt, Shoma Chowdhury, who wrote a book all about witches in in India. And there's something like I think really privileged about being able to openly explore and engage with this tradition of witchcraft, uh, this history, persecution. I mean, so being identified as a witch has been this thing that largely patriarchal societies have used to control women, among other things. So I think it's a, it's fascinating that it's emerging at this time, as we also experience kind of a culture shift around what's art, what has already started and is likely going to be coming and unfolding over the next 30 years, which is a, a world largely run by women. I mean, we've been graduating more women from undergraduate now for a while, graduating more women from graduate programs now for a bit. The pandemic, of course, receded those trends a little bit, but they're not going to stop them permanently. And so it's 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 interesting to think about the ways that these micro-religious decisions are being influenced by larger demographic patterns. Right, totally. Tell me what it's like moving from the coast of California to West Texas. Well, I had a stop in Nashville, so right. that um, cushioned the transition, I guess I would say. <laughs> but I think what's interesting about our jobs as faculty members is that I really believe in the invisible college idea. Mm. I mean, the fact that even though I am one of two sociologists on campus, people who have PhDs in sociology on campus, and uh, the only one with a full-time sociology appointment, I am still in regular contact with lots of, of other sociologists mm. and doing, lots, doing several projects with people that keep me as connected as, as is possible. Um, with with the discipline and and you know doing this podcast has been really helpful in that too in, in keeping me kind of connected to what's going on and what's interesting and, and getting to talk with people who I, whose research I find just super fascinating and who are who are fun to talk to so uh, West Texas and in, in the uh, semi-arid place that we are here is, is definitely different than Los Angeles different, much different context I joke that I don't even look in my rearview mirror because no one's ever there um, you know, when I'm driving around, um, 
I do look at my rearview mirror, but it, it, it does seem less and less necessary as a tool. But, and of course, every place has its own. There are similarities and differences, you know, and it's probably the most, I mean, even though we both lived in Nashville, it's probably the most culturally Christian in a culture warrior sense, you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. like a, than I've ever, than I've ever been. I mean, Nashville is definitely, you know, one of the buckles of the Bible Belt and has a lot of religious infrastructure, but that doesn't mean that the religious institutions are central to the operation of the, I mean, they're important, but they aren't central to the operation of the community. Whereas I think here, it, you make a much stronger case that church affiliate, churches and church-affiliated institutions, such as ACU, are really core, you know, constituents and drivers of, of the, of the town. It was the, uh, my experience even in Wichita Falls too, my first job at Midwestern State University, which is, that's a state school, but just around town, the first question that I would get would be, what church do you go to? And I was like, well, it just struck me as like, oh, right. Like I haven't lived in Texas for seven years. This is often how people start conversations. And it was just a, it was nothing bad about it. It was just a different way of interacting with folks than it was a side of grown used to. Yeah, it's super interesting. There are things that we've lived here almost four years. And so that we're still getting used to. And there are things that are, are great about it. And, you know, but it's changing. I mean, that's the thing. Like all towns and cities, you know, are changing. You know, this this place grew in population, which lots of rural counties in, in the United States and in Texas didn't because of uh, Abilene and the and the economic driver that the city is and the universities are. There's a big focus on economic development and jobs and that kind of stuff. So it's been interesting to see how things how things have changed. But th- so thanks for the question. Yeah, very. I'm always curious about big moves like that. I mean, it was a stretch for us, like coming to Colorado. We felt really lucky to land in a place that was like, as an academic, you don't often get a choice. And it's, it felt like a choice. And, and it's like, I wonder how other people navigate all these things and the spaces that they find themselves in. All right, well, you've been listening to The Annex, a sociology podcast. My thanks to Josh Packard of the Springtide Research Institute, to our producer, Oscar Rosario Caballero, music by Lena Orsa. I'm Dan Morrison from Abilene Christian University, 